Well, good evening and welcome to Good Friday. Thank you, Beth and team. Appreciate you all so much for leading us in worship tonight. Can we just give it up for the worship team? Thank you guys for your hard work. Getting ready for tonight. Of course, Easter Sunday coming up in just a couple of days. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Nate lead pastor here, and right after this service, I'll be at our guest suite, top of the stairs to the left, if it's your first time or we've never met. Please stop by, I'd love to meet you and say hello. This week, this week of Holy Week, we talked about on Sunday, it's really a week of remembrance. It's a time for Christians around the world just to sort of pause and reflect and remember the last week that Jesus lived before he went to the cross. And tonight, we're gonna continue in that theme of remembrance, as part of remembrance, we're gonna read the complete story of that first Good Friday. We're gonna read from Mark's account. If you're following along in our Holy Week devotional, we were in Matthew uh, this morning, but this evening, we're gonna read from Mark. And I do wanna just ask you to do something a little different. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We'll read Mark chapter 15. You don't have to read out loud, but you can follow along on the screens. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin. The chief priests tied Jesus up and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, aren't you going to answer? Look at how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. And the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. And Pilate answered them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? for he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. And Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call king of the Jews? And again they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having flogged Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. And they dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him and then led him out to crucify him. They forced a man who was coming in from the country, who was passing by, to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide 
what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ah, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. And when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Leam Sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you Abandon me. And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick and offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Hosus and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he, found the centurion, when he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Hosus, were watching where he was laid. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's quite a story. <clears throat> no matter how many times I've read the story or preached from the story, the story of the crucifixion of Jesus the Messiah never becomes ordinary. There's so many amazing, astounding, and humbling things just in one story. And this is just one gospel account. Tonight, we're gonna focus primarily in on what we read in verses 37 to 39. I'll put it back on the screen. We'll center in on this and go from there. Again, in verse 37, it said, Jesus let out a loud cry. Then he breathed his last, and at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion saw this, he said, surely, truly, has to be that this was the Son of God. 
From 1961 to 1989, there was a wall in Berlin, Germany. And it divided East Germany from West Germany. And it symbolized more than just the divide of Germ Germany. It came to symbolize something we call the Iron Curtain that would separate Western Europe from Eastern Bloc nations. And it was in place and historically what we refer to as the Cold War. And I mention this tonight because there's many of you here who remember this well. And there's some of you who heard about it growing up. If you have not, you're on the younger spectrum tonight. The Cold War was a long period of tension between the United States and the Soviet Union. In 1987, President Ronald Reagan gave a landmark speech in West Berlin and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And a few years after the speech, the wall did in fact come down and it was the beginning of the end for the Soviet Union. And when it did, there was a new sense of liberty and freedom, particularly for the people who lived east of the wall. But all around the world, people felt the sense of liberty and freedom when the wall came down. I share that just as a bit of a picture to try to gain a little bit of understanding of what it must have been like to live in the time of Jesus when there was a different wall. You see, long before that wall, there was another wall that stood between God and man. The Berlin Wall, it was a wall of hostility, but this wall, this curtain, this veil, was a wall of holiness. A wall that separated the presence of a holy God from unholy humanity. And now on this side of the cross and the resurrection, some 2,000 years into the new covenant, 2,000 years into a new reality, a new way of doing things, at times it can be easy to take for granted the access that we have to God himself. In our time and space, it can be easy to miss, it can be easy to miss that the forgiveness we now enjoy and the ability to even approach a holy God was a foreign and unknown concept to people who followed Jesus, excuse me, who followed Yahweh up until the death of Jesus. Unknown, unfathomable. So in keeping with remembrance, I wanna take you back for a moment tonight. I wanna show you just how serious and delicate it was to approach God before Jesus went to the cross. So there's many things that are significant about Good Friday. But tonight, we're gonna go on a historical journey and look at the significance of the cross through the lens of the temple, the holy place, and the veil. So the first thing you have to know, number one, is that the temple at this time, it was the only place where God was worshiped. You had to come here to worship him. And to get an idea of what the temple complex would have looked like, I brought a few pictures for you tonight. We'll show you the first one. This thing was absolutely massive and magnificent. It was the centerpiece of Jerusalem and it was the center of Jewish life. The complex that you see here, the big wall around, this thing was over 37 acres of land. There was nothing else like it. I'll zoom in a little closer for me if you would, guys. We'll take a closer look at a little more detailed portion. And even though this picture here looks beautiful, and it was, Something else you should know about the temple is that it was a bloody place to be. At that time, people were making regular sacrifices to God. The temple was the place to go to do that. The temple was open for business, if you will, 365 days a year. Every day, animals being sacrificed to God, among other things. Fires permeated 
The smoke went out through the whole city. It was unmistakable, which was largely the point, to remind people the seriousness of this holy God. But the Bible says that the smoke went up like a fragrance before God. Now, sadly, the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, and it has never to this day been rebuilt. Mostly because for most of history, the Jewish people never had control of it. The one shot they had in 1967, for reasons unknown, the Israeli defense minister, Moshe Dayan, allowed the Muslims to retain administrative control of the temple. So even still, even still, though the Jews occupy Jerusalem now, they still don't have control of this space. And therefore, the temple has never been rebuilt. Now, this next image, you'll see a few more details about the temple. I don't have time to go into all of it. Some of you are considering taking a trip to Jerusalem with the church, to Israel. You'll get a chance to not see this because it's not there, but where it used to be and a few of the ruins if you decide to go on that. There at the, at the front, you can see the gate, beautiful. That's the place where Peter and John healed the crippled man as recording in Acts chapter three. There's other details that we don't have time to get into uh, but over there on the far left, you see something called the holy place, and that's what I wanna talk about next. The holy place was where God's manifest presence dwelt. You see, now we think, oh, the presence of God is just all over the place, it's in me, you'll come anytime we ask. It was not the case at this time. The presence of God showed up in one very specific place under a very specific set of circumstances. Several passages in the Old Testament spell out much of the detail that informs what the holy place must be like, what it must look like, what it must contain. We're gonna look at a few of the key components as we go into this. What I want you to grasp is that Yahweh, the covenant name for God, Yahweh is a God of order and details and holiness and righteousness, and the details always matter to him. So inside the holy place, you can put that picture back up, please. Uh, you, you can see on the right side of this chamber, you have what's called the outer chamber. And on the left side, the second chamber, which is called the most holy place, or all otherwise called the holy of holies. Maybe you've heard that before. And it was in there, in the holy of holies, that the presence of God dwelt. There's some other things in here that I wanna point out to you and say a little bit about. We'll just leave this image up while I roll through a few scriptures. But God gave specific instructions. You see on the bottom right, the golden lampstands. Exodus 25, 31 says this. You're to make a lampstand out of pure hammered gold and it's to be made of one piece. It's base and shaft, it's ornamental cups, it's buds, it's petals. It goes on to describe in more detail how the lampstand was to be made functionally. The lampstand was the only way the priest could see what they were doing when they went in there. This place was completely shut out to the outside. Separate, no sunlight coming in. You can't see anything, so you light the golden lampstands. There's other symbolism to them. I don't have time to get into it all. I just wanna give you an overview tonight. You see there in the back, the table of showbread. Exodus 25, 23 says, you're to construct a table of acacia wood, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, 27 inches high. Over in Leviticus 24, five and six, it says, take fine flour and bake it into 12 loaves. Each loaf is to be made with four quarts. Arrange them in two rows, six to a row, and then place them on a pure gold table before the Lord. Are you starting to see God cares about details? Giving specific information on how things were to be done. This showbread here, this table of showbread, the bread was there and it was placed continually 
to represent and to remind people that God was continually with them. And then at certain times, they would come to where the, the table was set and the bread was on it, and they would bring the finest wine and just spill it out on the floor underneath the bread as a drink offering before the Lord. You have the bread and the spilled wine. What does that bring to mind? Next, you have the altar of incense. Exodus 30 says this, verses one, two, and six. You're to make an altar of burning incense. Make it of acacia wood. It must be square, 18 inches long, 18 inches wide. It must be 36 inches high. Its horns must be of one piece with it. And you're to place the altar in front of the curtain by the ark of the testimony in front of the mercy seat that's over the testimony and that is where I will meet you. The holy incense that was burned at this altar of incense you see here, this was made of four specific spices and then seasoned with salt. These four different elements were ground together until they were a fine mixture that was totally uniform. You can't separate them out anymore. And the mixture that they made to be used here was only to be used here. In fact, if any person was caught making the same incense, they would be cut off from the people of Israel. This was only for the Lord, this fragrance, only for Yahweh. Now the whole holy place here that you see was set aside only for the priest. But then even more separation on the left side of the veil where you see the ark, the cherubim, the holy of holies, that was set aside only for the high priest. And in between it is a veil. Now when I say the word veil, most of you probably think about a bride walking down the aisle with the veil that she can see through, a little sheer, translucent veil. This veil was a lot more like a wall than like the veil that you may think of at this time. And this veil, number three, the veil separated God from man because of sin. When I was writing the devotional for Holy Week, I had come across several sources that said that it was 60 feet tall, 20 feet wide, and four feet thick. As I continued to study for the message, I came across even more compelling evidence that it was even bigger and more majestic than that. According to the Talmud, Jewish tradition, the veil, it was 60 feet tall, but it's probably more like 30 feet wide. And then it said that it was as thick as the width of a man's hand which on average is about nine to 10 inches from thumb to pinky on the other side. It was so heavy that it took 300 priests to hang it, move it, manipulate it. Look around the room. We don't have 300 people in here, much less 300 full grown men. That's what it took just to move this thing, to reshape it. The Bible tells us in Exodus, the veil of the curtain, it was made of blue and purple, scarlet yarns, fine twine linen, had cherubim angels woven right into it with gold. I don't even know how they did that back then. I don't know how they do that now. How do you weave gold like that into patterns, fabrics, very specific. They had to be hung on golden pillars with golden hooks. Are you starting to get the picture of just how big and majestic the curtain is, just how serious this space was? And here's a few other things that you need to know about the veil. No one, as I mentioned before, was permitted except for the high priest. But even with that, the high priest could only go through that veil. If you can put that picture back up. The high priest could only go through that veil one time per year and only that one person. On the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, he would go in there. And when he would go in, he had to do a very specific set of things 
or he would risk being killed. Before anything else, he had to go in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. First, the, bull, the blood of a bull for his own sins. And then the blood of a goat for the sins of everyone else. Hebrews 9 gives us a little picture about this as well. It says in verse six and seven, with these things prepared like this, the priest entered the first room, the holy place, repeatedly performing their ministry. So they're going to the front part all the time. That, that bread that was being put out all the time. Candles staying lit. Drink offerings being given. All of that's happening all the time. Verse seven, but the high priest alone enters the second room and he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Now I mentioned the mercy seat. Maybe you're wondering what that is. Let me show you a picture of that as well. The mercy seat was the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. Now before God's people had the temple, they would carry this ark around with them everywhere they went in the presence of the Lord would stay with the ark on top of a large piece of gold representing the purity of God. And then Exodus 25 tells us that when the priest would come in, he would give the sacrifices right there between those two angels on top of the mercy seat, the presence of God would manifest. This is what it took to approach God. Ongoing sacrifices, keep the candles lit, keep the bread out, give the drink offerings, keep the incense, the very specific incense, and one time a year, breach the veil. Under the mercy seat, you see the Ark of the Covenant. It was also made to great specifications and it contained very specific things, two tablets written on them, the Ten Commandments, a bowl of manna to remind the people of God's sustenance for them. Aaron's rod, which was used in a great miracle. These things were in there as reminders in the Holy of Holies. And by the way, when the priest went in, maybe you've heard this before, but maybe some of you hadn't, they would attach a rope with bells around the ankles of the priest in case he died. Because no one else could go in or they would immediately die in the presence of God. So they had to listen for the bells. Do we hear him? Do we hear him? If they didn't hear him, they would have to pull him out. There's so much more that I could say about all of this, but what I want you to catch is all of this paints a picture of the reverence for the holiness of God that was demanded. The presence of God was inaccessible to the average person, unapproachable, and even by the high priest demanded a very specific kind of respect coming before the Lord. But all of that changed the day that Jesus died. We read it earlier, we'll put it back up, Mark 15, 38. As Jesus gave out his last breath, the curtain, this curtain, it takes 300 men to move. It was torn in two from top to bottom. Just like that, in one movement. I was sitting with my friend Mel today and we were talking about this message and he said, you know, there was also a tradition that when people would go into a time of mourning or grieving, they would tear their garments from top to bottom as a sign of lamenting. And now here in this moment, as Jesus breathed his last, in a sense, we see the Father tear his garments, but making access to himself in a way that had never been accessed before. This beautiful, magnificent, imposing curtain 
that separated God from everyone but the high priest. Now the moment that Jesus died is torn from top to bottom. And do you know why it was important to be torn from top to bottom? It wasn't man tearing the curtain to get to God. It was God tearing the curtain to come to man from the top down. Which brings me to my final point tonight, which is that Jesus' death was the ultimate sacrifice that reunites God with man. At the exact moment, this God that was once distant, not approachable, not accessible, he said, right now, right here, from now and forevermore, I'm going to change all of that. This veil is no more. Our forevermore will be approachable. I will be accessible. Oh, and I will be near to you. It was a cosmic statement of freedom and liberation. It was a fundamental change in the way that people would relate to God from that time forward. Now free to come to him boldly, free to access him directly, able to have sins completely forgiven. By the way, not just covered by blood of animals, not just put onto a scapegoat and sent out into the desert, but forgiven, cleansed, forever made new. No more going through the high priest, no more animal sacrifices, no more scapegoats, just an open invitation through Jesus to come to the foot of the cross, to lay down all your burdens at his feet, to give him your life in exchange for his. This is what was accomplished on the cross, on Golgotha, when Jesus died. Oh, I hope that you can see tonight the beauty, the majesty, the prophetic symbolism of everything that I've just been showing you. It was all there to paint a picture of what was to come. We talked about on Sunday how Jesus came and the people missed it because they were looking for something different. They saw that he was the Messiah, but they didn't understand what the Messiah was. They had all this symbolism in front of them and somehow they missed they missed all of the signs as Jesus began to not only just fulfill prophecy, but to become the holy place, to become the ultimate lampstand, the light of the world, to become the, pres- the bread of presence, to become, to become the showbread, to become the thing that feeds you, that gives you life now and forevermore. He became the final drink offering, pouring out not just the choicest wine, but the purest of all blood for you and for me. He was crushed for your iniquities, and it went up like a fragrance to the Father. Jesus became the mercy seat, the place where ultimate justice is done, but ultimate mercy prevails. He became the way. He became the veil. He became the truth. He became the life. And through him and through him alone, now we can do what Hebrews 4, 16 16 says. Therefore now, let us approach the throne of grace boldly so that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. Friends, today, we miss sometimes just how valuable it was that Jesus made a way for us. Not just to come and say, oh, hell, I know you've sinned, but I forgive you. It'll be fine. It's not fine. It's just that you can be free. It's not okay you can be forgiven. Jesus is the place where justice and mercy 
come together. By the way, the foot of the cross is the only place in all of human history where true equity has ever existed or ever will. It's the place where none of us get what we deserve and all of us get what we do not. And now, like Hebrews said, let us approach this throne of grace with boldness. I wanna encourage you tonight to remember, to remember God was once far off, but through the death of Jesus, he has been made near. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you. I don't understand all of your ways. I don't understand all of the mysteries. There's so much more we could say, and yet there's infinitely more that we may never know. But today, God, we thank you. We thank you for sending your son. At the right time, while we were still sinners, you came and you died for us to forgive us of our sins, to make a way back to the Father, to die the death we should have died after living a life that we could never live. And so tonight, tonight we remember you. We remember what you've done for us. And with gratitude in our hearts, we say thank you. On your way in tonight, you should have received the communion elements. Go ahead and take those out. On the small end, if you'll remove the seal, there's a piece of bread in there. This bread represents the broken body of Jesus, the bread of his presence, the show bread. That bread was made, broken once and for all give life to all who would call upon his name. Tonight, let's remember his broken body and receive the bread together. You can turn over the chalice and remove the other seal. There was a time that the priest would spill the choicest wine all over the floor as a drink offering unto the Lord but on the cross at Calvary. To make sure he was dead, they pierced his side and blood and water flowed. The purest of all blood. Not just to cover your sins, but to cleanse them. His blood shed for you and for me. Let's receive this tonight in remembrance. Jesus, we thank you. For all that you've done, we thank you. Let's worship him now. Thank you for listening to this message. You can stay connected with us at Vintage.Church or on Facebook by searching Vintage Church TX. At Vintage, we believe church is more than a place or a weekend activity. It's a spiritual family where Jesus is the center of our lives personally and our relationships collectively. If you're in the Liberty Hill area, we would love to have you join us this week. You can learn more about us, our service time, and plan your visit by visiting vintage.church slash Liberty Hill. We hope to see you soon.